feel so still and peaceful in the room tonight. Really grateful to be here with everyone on retreat. Grateful to be working with Deborah and Kamala. And just feeling a lot of gratitude today, reflecting on the teachings in preparation for the talk tonight. I feel so fortunate to be um, living this kind of life that allows time for reflection on these teachings and the direct application of the teachings, like reflecting on my experience with these teachings. And tonight I'd like to talk about the Four Noble Truths, especially the first two. And it really flows, I think, nicely from what Deborah spoke about on Saturday night. She was, among other things, talking about this wonderful story about working as an engineer and collecting data and really seeing this practice, understanding mindfulness as being really interested in the truth of things. And if we just collect data in this particular way, this honest, interested way, and uh, we just keep doing that, clarity comes. And this teaching on the Four Noble Truths is really about how to direct that mindfulness. Like, we're different than the Buddha. The Buddha had to walk this path without the teachings, but we have these maps that a wise person has left behind, and so many of our spiritual ancestors, the women and men that have come before us and done their practice, they've reaffirmed that this map really works and makes its way here to Barrie, Massachusetts. And we also get to directly in our own lives see if it works, see if it really leads to clarity and insight and freedom. So part of this gathering of data is really around these Four Noble Truths. And then it really useful to have heard Kamala's talk last night because in order to follow or to take up this map that the Buddha gives us, we really need that courageousness that Kamala spoke about last night, just to be steady with our experience, fearless, and to have confidence or faith that the heart is capable of being steady in the midst of pain and uncertainty and whatever else might arise for us, even seemingly innocent but very difficult states of boredom and restlessness and sleepiness and doubt. Why am I here? So Kamala spoke last night in part about the nobility of suffering that uh, I remember long ago reading in Sharon Salzberg's book. I, I don't remember the exact quote. I couldn't find it today, but somewhere in that book on loving kindness that she wrote a while back, she wrote something that really made an impact in my mind. She said something like, suffering itself is not a transforming experience. And we all know this. I mean, when we're suffering, when we're caught in the suffering, identified with the suffering, it's quite deliberate, uh, sort of breaks down the heart, weakens the mind, even can harm the body if we're in states of suffering for too long. And then she goes on and says something, but opening to suffering is transforming, is liberating, is enlivening. 
And so this is our task really to turn toward life as it is, including the difficulties in life, and to be enlivened and transformed and liberated in that process. One more Kamala story. I remember a while back, I think it was in the 90s, she was leading a nine-day retreat with her husband, Steve Armstrong, in Minnesota. And she was telling, in a Dharma talk, she was telling a story when Menindadri, one of her teachers, was visiting her, and there was some domestic messiness going on as he was there at the dinner table. And uh, in the midst of all this, and probably intuiting that Kamala was feeling some weight around what was going on at her house with her beloved teacher there. I think Kamala mentioned he put his hand on her arm or something like that and said, it's the law. <laughs> and I, that, I still remember that. I, it comes up in my mind from time to time. It's like whenever my heart is inclined to turn away from life, it's too much, it's too confusing, it's not what I want, I don't think I can handle it, it's not fair. I just remember Kamala, who has this nice soft exterior, but is steely on the inside. <laughs> and I think part of it is this teaching she got from Manindaji, it's the law. This is the way that it is. This is our teacher, our noble teacher. We should be so grateful for these experiences that come up, whether they're the seemingly innocent ones, like boredom on retreat, or something much more difficult and uh, hard to understand, hard to connect with, some old emotional pain, for example. So I don't know if you like a little bit of the Buddhist lore, but this particular talk the Buddha gave, the first talk, his first Dharma talk, setting the wheel of Dhamma in motion, it has a nice ending because uh, the Buddha had this profound insight, but it wasn't clear whether that insight was going to be useful for other people. So traditionally in Theravada Buddhism, this talk is a big deal because the Buddha was able to articulate what occurred, the insight that arose in his own mind. He was able to articulate it in a way that other people could get it and benefit from it. And so I'll just share a little bit about how that, how they finished that discourse. And when the Blessed One had set the wheel of Dhamma in motion, the earth devas, the celestial beings, the lowest level of celestial beings, cried out, at Varanasi and the game refuge of Isipatana, the Blessed One has set in motion the unexcelled wheel of Dhamma that cannot be stopped by anyone, anyone in the cosmos. On hearing the earth devas cry, the devas of the four kings heaven took up the cry. The devas of the 33, the yama devas, the tusita devas, it goes on and on like this, the very hierarchical celestial realms, until it goes all the way up to the brahma realms, the highest realms. So in that moment, that instant, the cry shot right up to the brahma worlds. And this 10,000-fold cosmos shivered and quivered and quaked, while well, a great measureless radiance appeared in the cosmos, surpassing the effulgence of all the celestial beings. Then the Blessed One exclaimed, So you really know, Kandanya, so you really know. That was one of the five people there at his first 
Dharma talk. And that is how Venerable Kandana acquired the name Ana Kandana, which means the one who knows or Kandanya who knows, because he had deep insight upon hearing the Buddhist talk. So that was a, a special moment in the lineage that we're following in that somebody hears the teachings and hearing the teachings, digesting them right then as they're hearing and seeing the truth of them in their own experience right then and there receives the benefit of that insight, the freedom or the release of the heart that comes from seeing things as they are. Now, normally the Buddha, when he was teaching new people, he wouldn't just start out teaching the Four Noble Truths. There is dukkha, there is suffering or the unsatisfactoriness in experience, inherent in experience. It has a cause, which is the attachment to desire. There is a cessation, a freedom or release from this suffering, this stress, this unsatisfactoriness, and then there's a way. So these are the Four Noble Truths. And normally the Buddha wouldn't lead with this teaching because normally people would come to him and they want to be happy. And so the Buddha would sort of meet them where they are. So if you want to be happy, you need to understand cause and effect. Like, what are the causes for happiness? And, And then he would say, and I've looked carefully at this issue, and I can tell you that the causes for worldly happiness, just ordinary happiness, is living a generous life, cultivating non-harming in all ways, all parts of your life, and developing the mind. These are the three ways to develop or to set in motion causes that lead to ordinary worldly happiness. This is like good information because, to be honest, we're still in that place of wanting to be just a ha- let me just be a happy human being. Maybe, maybe later I'll, be, I'll understand enough or be really motivated. So we're probably a little bit on the fence, all of us to some degree, where mostly or sometimes we just want our life to be better. And so he'd give these people, or give people teachings on dana, sila, bhavana, or generosity, morality, or integrity, or non-harming, and developing the mind steadying one's attention, that sort of evenness of presence, being unflappable, calm, mindful. And then as people developed those qualities and and got the benefits, their life became more harmonious and things seemed to work a little better. They were able to be more skillful in the world. But people then began to see that even when things are working really well, Life is just limited because we can't take anything with us. Nothing is dependable or reliable ultimately. And even when we have done everything we can do, pain, difficulty still arises for us and certainly arises for those around us. And that moves our heart as well. So then when people were ripe, then the Buddha would give the teaching about the limitations of the world. Just Um, inviting people to contemplate how even the best the world has to offer is limited. It doesn't mean the world is bad. The Buddha never said the world is bad. He just said it's limited. It doesn't, it really isn't appropriate to grasp worldly experiences or 
ordinary experiences because they can actually deliver the happiness that we actually seek. You know, it's funny. I think it's just part of our basic human delusion. We think this world was created to make us happy. And then we feel betrayed. When I, like, what the heck is going on? <laughs> you know? you're not, I mean, you're not here to... We think that way about our partners and our pets. We think that that should be true with the food we eat, like this food is here to make me happy. But the food isn't here to make us happy. Our partners aren't here to make us happy. That's really not what the world is about. It's really not here to make us happy. That's a, that's a real maturing when we start to get that that's not what the world's about. And then this opens us up to the, really to the beginning of the Four Noble Truths where the Buddha starts to teach about the joy of letting go or the joy of renunciation or even just opening our minds that, that there's something beyond the pursuit of worldly happiness. Like even just opening the mind to that is an insight that happiness may not be about finally getting my house renovated until it's just right. Oh, and then by the way, I also want that cabin on Lake Superior, you know, and then I want a super duper hybrid car so I'm not destroying the earth driving (laughs) to Lake Superior, which is at least three hours away from Minneapolis. And this is how my mind works. (laughs) And that I'm sure you've seen it never ends because we can always, the mind can always conceive of something to add on to the worldly pleasures that we've been able to come up with. And of course, a lot of people don't have very many worldly pleasures. And then we have to work really hard at making that make sense. Have you noticed that? It's like, how, uh, how do we hold the fact that there are so many people suffering, let alone all the other species that are suffering, that we could actually do something about? So this is the Buddha pointing to the limitations of the world and that even when we are quite competent and skilled at making things work our way and getting what makes us happy, that that's stressful because it never ends. It actually doesn't lead to satisfaction. It's like uh, there's a great line in one of Joko Beck's books. She's, uh, she died recently, a wonderful Zen teacher, Western Zen teacher, uh, had, uh, I think it was called something like the San Diego Zen Center or something like that for many years. She calls this the promise that's never kept. You know, that sense that one more thing from the world, one more, and then, so we're ready to hear the Buddhist teachings on renunciation. And then he would teach the Four Noble Truths. So I want to share some of that discourse where he talks about these Four Noble Truths. First, just another passage from one of the Buddha's discourses where he says, if there were no satisfaction to be found in the world, beings would not be attached to the world. And I like this line because the Buddha is saying, that worldly pleasures are worldly pleasures. They're real worldly pleasures, 
Family life, when it's harmonious, is a worldly pleasure. It's really sweet when a family or a group of friends or like the community we have here at IMS, when it's harmonious, it feels really good. That's a worldly pleasure, you know, a relatively wholesome worldly pleasure. And the, the wonderful food that gets prepared, thoughtfully presented, there's the care that has gone into structuring and managing the retreat, the beautiful buildings, the thoughtfulness of like the colors that were chosen and the environment that was created here. I mean, let alone all the other worldly pleasures just here, this is a profoundly pleasant place <laughs> being at IMS. I mean, it doesn't mean our minds are always pleasant, but the place itself is quite nice. And especially with weather like we're having right now, it's really nice. <laughs> so if there, weren't, if there were no satisfaction to be found in the world, then there wouldn't be attachment. So when we get attached, it's understandable. It's natural we get attached because worldly pleasures are pleasurable. And then the Buddha says, if there were no misery to be found in the world, beings would not be repelled by the world. Right? So we get disgusted by the world. We feel betrayed by the world. We're healthy and then we get sick. And it's like such a shock, even though we know intellectually people get sick, it always seems a shock when we get a bad cold or have some disease. And uh, we get repulsed by life. And it feels appropriate to hate life or to hate this aspect of life. And this is also natural because some aspects of our life are really noxious, really hard to bear. I'm sure many of you have gone through some of these really difficult times. Maybe you're going through one of them right now. And then he ends this short passage. If there were no escape from the world, beings would not escape therefrom. And I think, I can't remember, but I think Deborah mentioned another teaching on Saturday night about, you know, if it, if it wasn't possible to do this practice, I wouldn't be asking you to do it. But it is possible to cultivate what's skillful and to abandon what's unskillful. So that's why I'm asking you to do it. So another way of saying that the Buddha is saying, it is possible to escape this world. And this is where he starts the Four Noble Truth talk. Sometimes we call it or talk about it in terms of the middle way. He began by saying, well, just a little background. Uh, some of you probably know this story, but it's just interesting. I'll, I'll just go through it shortly because, you know, who knows whether these stories are exactly right historically, but they're very instructive whether or not they're literal or not. So the Buddha was practicing for a number of years. And uh, at some point he started doing some pretty extreme ascetic practices. And it really comes from that last thing where we see the limitations of the world. And because of strong concentration, evenness of mind, the Buddha really saw the limitations of the world, the Buddha-to-be saw the limitations of the world with great clarity. And naturally it arises in the mind like, oh, the world's a bad scene. I want out. And this is really where ascetic practices come from. Like just the whole need to have food is such a place of suffering. I'm just going to retreat, you know, fast 
or take only as little as needed. Social relationships are so complicated. I'm just going to retreat from social interactions. You know, having a body is such a pain. You know, I'm just going to pretend I don't have a body. You see, and this, you see this sort of thing in different spiritual traditions, this idea of transcending life by rejecting it, as if aversion of life led to something other than the stress of aversion or the pain of aversion, of hatred. So the Buddha was practicing this way with five other colleagues and, uh, and uh, was evidently very emaciated, not having eaten much in a long time. And I think either a waking dream or a sleeping dream, but he had this vision arise in his mind of a time when he was a young boy, maybe five, let's say, and uh, it was like a festival day. Um, his father was out doing this ceremonial first plowing, maybe in spring, and the little boy was maybe cared for under a nice tree, protected, and all this happy stuff going on. And he remembered that at that time, his mind really settled down, maybe to what is called in this tradition, access concentration, or maybe first jhana. But the mind is in a very peaceful place, no hindrances present in the mind. And the Buddha remembered that time. This is many years later, maybe 30 years later or something like that. The Buddha remembers this time and wonders, well, maybe I don't need to be afraid of that kind of worldly happiness. You know, having a mind that's really in balance, a body that's healthy. Maybe I don't need to be afraid of that kind of uh, happiness. And then the answer arose in his mind, yeah, you don't need to be afraid of that kind of happiness that kind of well-being, that kind of balance. So he changed the way he practiced. He got some good food from somebody who offered him some delicious milk rice or something like that, regained his strength. Not so long later, he made this resolve to sit under this beautiful tree until he, he, he intuited that his mind was really ripe for deep insight. And he made the resolve to stay sitting, to stay practicing, until he realized what could be realized by a human being. And then that's the night we all celebrate, you know, the night under the Bodhi tree with the deep insight. And then his friends who thought he had gone soft because he had rejected ascetic practices had wandered off. And after integrating and understanding what the insights that had arisen in his mind for a number of days, 40 some days, he decided to go find those fellow Dharma friends and eventually showed up. And when they first saw him, they said, you know, this is that guy who's gone weak. But as he got closer, they saw something just in his presence that was a little magnetic. And they couldn't help themselves but offer him a seat and pay attention to what he had to say. And so the Buddha began his talk by saying, there are these two extremes that are not to be indulged in by one who has gone forth. And you can, we could just imagine the Buddhist talking to us in a, in a very real way. We have gone forth. And now he's saying there are two extremes that we shouldn't indulge in. So I'm interested to hear what the Buddha has to say. Which two, he says. That which is devoted to sensual pleasures with reference to sensual objects, base, vulgar, common, ignoble, unprofitable, and that which is devoted to self-affliction, painful, ignoble and unprofitable. 
So the Buddha is saying, both seeing the world as a place to deliver me happiness, meaningful, lasting happiness, it's not going to happen. Rejecting the world as a means towards lasting happiness, it's not going to happen. Neither leaning into the world, trying to extract from the world of our experiences lasting happiness, real peace, is fruitless. Rejecting the world because it can't deliver lasting happiness is fruitless. The middle way is not that and not the other. It's something else altogether. But that's a powerful pointing out because that basically encapsulates most of our activity in the world. Trying to get happiness by adjusting our body one more time, you know, or redirecting our mind or whatever we do when we're sitting, or just wanting to be done. I, I practiced this last, this, uh, the second means way too much. I should have gotten it along before. I'm still falling into that habit of uh, thinking it's a spiritual move just to give up, but kind of not give up in a depressed way, but like uh, just wanting to be done. Like so sitting with physical pain and thinking that somehow it's wise that it's spiritually productive to just like, I don't care if it kills me, I'm not going to move my body. Because it's just too easy. It's like the mind doesn't really want to understand the experience of pain. It just wants to be done with it. And it just assumes that, well, if I just reject it because I know, I know it's not self, because the Buddha said it's not self. I know it's, you know, just this experience being known. So I don't, I don't have to deal with it. But that's not the Buddhist teachings. He said that's that rejection, and that, that isn't the way. And the, the way, as you know now, all know, it's the path of understanding. It's seeing, understanding that experience is our primary teacher. Gathering these data points, as Deborah mentioned, with the courageousness, the fearlessness, the confidence that the heart is capable of turning toward or opening up to our experience, as Kamala mentioned last night. And the Buddha continues, he says, avoiding both of these extremes, the middle way realized by the Tathagata, which is the name he used to refer to himself, the one thus gone, producing vision, producing knowledge, leads to calm, to direct knowledge, to self-awakening, to unbinding. I like that translation. I think it's Ajahn Tanisaro's translation of Nibbana, unbinding the releasing or unbinding of the heart. This last point that I made, or a few moments ago I made, about the world not being bad is important because I think this is a shadow sometimes in Buddhist practice. Because even the form we rely on so much, the meditation form of sitting quietly in a quiet place, like we are here away from our homes, it can look outwardly like we're rejecting the world, like our home life is bad. So that's why we have to go to IMS, where it's good. <laughs> and it can be, it could seem dualistic, but it's not that the world is bad. 
because of course this is the world too. I mean, this is one of the great discoveries being on retreat is how much we bring with us. <laughs> no matter how far away we are from our homes, the mind is still here with us. So, but in the supportive conditions where it's simpler, where, it's, where we have a lot of support, a lot of love and a lot of instruction, uh, sort of the cumulative wisdom of our spiritual ancestors from the Buddha on down, we have this support so we can basically see the truth of our experience instead of rejecting it or endlessly trying to find. I remember some of my first retreats at IMS, like, I mean, it wasn't a big thing, but I noticed like wanting to find the nicest place. And, uh, you know, there was this pond. It, it used to be, I think, even more beautiful than it is now, just at the end of the parking lot. Before the beavers came, there are all these really nice birch trees. They saved a few, but a lot of them have been chewed off. And, uh, yeah, it was just beautiful. And so, but then it's like, yeah, but there's some people who see who are there at that place. So maybe a place a little bit more secluded, you know, and then to go into the woods and there's some little rock cliffs and, and it was just that neurotic need, you know, like, if I just find the right place, I'll be happy. <laughs> it's that way with our walking places, right? It's amazing how we can create suffering or perpetuate suffering where we sit. Like at first, you know, I'm going to be early in line so I don't have to wait. And then it was like, no, I'll wait until everyone's gone through so I don't have to deal with anybody and then I'll go through the line. Like all the different strategies. I'm glad you're laughing. <laughs> that means you understand. So then the Buddha in this talk goes through each of the four noble truths. And we'll spend a little time on the first two and then quickly on the last two. So the first noble truth. What is the noble truth of suffering? And the Buddha mentions then the obvious things. Birth is suffering. Aging is suffering, sickness is suffering, disassociation from the loved is suffering, not to get what one, what, want, what one wants is suffering. In short, the five aggregates affected by clinging are suffering. Now this last line, the five categories affected by clinging are suffering, is really the Buddha's way of universalizing the experience of dukkha. So there's some things that are obviously dukkha like for most people, the dying process or loss, not getting what we want. But he's saying that even if you've got everything right, just having a mind and body and being attached or clinging to the mind and body, that's what the Buddha means by the five aggregates. If you don't know, there's form and then five aspects of the mind, perception and feeling and mental formations and consciousness. So just in short, it's the mind and body, clinging to the mind and body experience. That's the five aggregates of clinging. So we say anybody with a mind and body, anybody who's clinging to the mind and body experience, experiences dukkha. And then he goes on, for each of the four insights or the four noble truths, and really think of each of these noble truths as a teacher. So dukkha, the stress or the unreliability, the unsatisfactoriness in life is a noble teacher, a teacher that knows how to teach. You know, it's just a question if we're going to 
submit to this teacher with wisdom. Or if we're going to dance around or pretend it ain't so, which is our tendency with dukkha. So for each of these four teachers, the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha says there are going to be three insights. And now, probably all of us are already working on these three insights with dukkha. The first insight, the Buddha says, there is this noble truth of suffering. Such was the vision, insight, wisdom, knowing, and light that arose in me about things not heard before. Now, this is interesting because we all think we know about suffering. But just this first insight is a very honest, direct acknowledgement of the truth of life, as Kamala said last night. So not coloring the experience at all. And the Buddha talks about three kinds of dukkha. So there's the obvious dukkha, you know, just having physical knee pain, for example, or the pain of loss, that emotional feeling of grief is, you know, just basic dukkha. But even when things are pleasant, we may not be aware of it, but it's unsatisfying subtly because even if we're not conscious of it, the mind knows that it will change, that it's unreliable, that it won't last. We can be in denial on the surface, but in the bones, so to speak, we know. And then there's even a more subtle kind of dukkha. The Buddha talked about sankara dukkha, but the dukkha that's just built into the system. Like, like I mentioned that the world wasn't designed to make us happy. And that realization that this world of experience will never, can never deliver the happiness the release the heart seeks is a real insight. So the first is just to realize that there are these kinds of dukkha. And then the second insight the Buddha talks about, and each one was like seeing something, as the Buddha says, that he hadn't, this mind hadn't seen before. That's what we mean by an insight. That's one aspect of the definition of insight is seeing something, realizing something in your direct experience that the mind uh, hadn't seen before. And often with insight, there's like, uh, it's surprising. Even though, this is interesting, even though that the insight might very much match the teaching that you're quite familiar with. And you heard hundreds of times from teachers, you reflected on it. And even though your insight matches that, the insight itself is surprising because the insight is different than the concept of impermanence, for example, or the concept of dukkha. We can understand it, but to see it directly is different. So the first insight the Buddha suggests from this first teacher of dukkha is that there is dukkha in life. And then the second insight is the mind sees clearly this dukkha should be understood. So this is that deepening understanding that this is a teacher, this isn't a problem. Because normally when we realize or see dukkha in life, we think this is a problem to solve. But now it's a different point of view, a different um, insight. This dukkha has something to teach me. It should be understood. And this is where 
the teachings on compassion are so important, somehow having that confidence that this heart is capable of turning toward the experiences that arise for us. We don't have to shrink away. And then the last insight in this first, with this first teacher, the first noble truth on dukkha, is that dukkha has been understood. In this moment, the way that the unreliableness of life, the unsatisfactoriness of life, the way that that's manifesting right now, this heart hasn't shrunk away. This heart is steady and interested and caring and mindful of the way that it actually is. And that, that is the maturing of that first insight. Now, it's not, not just once, but over and over again until it becomes the habit of the mind, basically, to see dukkha as a teacher, to turn toward it. And I, I find, even though I've been practicing for a while now, that it's not all the time. Sometimes I'll catch myself for a while, even a long while, avoiding some dukkha that's up in my life, thinking I can outrun it, I can pretend it's not there, I can fix it. And then later, because it's a very good teacher, (laughs) you know, it eventually, we get, oh yeah, oh yeah, you have something to teach me. So we stop, so to speak, and we, we gather the confidence that comes from our previous experience. We study the attention in all the different ways we know. Sometimes we open up the field of awareness to be with things that are difficult. Sometimes we invoke compassion or loving kindness. Sometimes we get interested, move right open to the center. Sometimes we practice surrendering. Sometimes we remember its impermanent nature so that we have all these skillful means to help be studied, to help basically move through those three insights. There is dukkha, it's relevant, it should be understood, it has been understood. And it's only when this insight has happened that we're able to move on. This is what Ajahn Sumedho, this wonderful Western monk, says about this first noble truth. He says, now you are looking at the pain or the anguish you feel, not from the perspective of it's mine, but as a reflection, there is this suffering, this dukkha. It's coming, it's coming from the reflect, reflective position of the Buddha seeing the Dhamma, right? This wise, mindful awareness, seeing the way that it is. This is our practice. So instead of this is my dukkha, it's the Buddha knowing Dhamma, this awakened, balanced, steady, mindful attention, seeing, knowing the way it is in this moment. The insight is simply the acknowledgement that there is this suffering without making it personal. That acknowledgement is an important insight. Just looking at mental anguish or physical pain and seeing it as dukkha rather than as personal misery. Just seeing it as dukkha and not reacting to it in a habitual way. So even though this seems, I probably am guessing, you know, mostly we understand how to use dukkha as a teacher, but 
Think about how many times in my sit today, even in your sits today, how many times it was, I'm sitting in order to, you know, I'm paying attention to the pain in my back in order to make it go away, in order to get some relief, in order to make it to the end of the sit. So, so much of our strategies are relating to our experience as it is, as if it were personal. And we're just managing. And we just have to be honest about that. And if we take that personal, personally rather, then we're just get angry at ourselves or judge ourselves, right? We'll just keep doing more of the same. So someplace we have to stop. That's why it's important to get the teaching that dukkha is a noble teacher for us. We don't have to manage it. Now, sometimes we're overwhelmed by dukkha and then we can strategically, you know, back away. But it doesn't mean we've forgotten that it's a noble teacher. We just We just, the teacher's a little too intense right now. (laughs) So we're going to do sipping tea practice, (laughs) looking at the wind blow through the leaves of the tree. That's okay. That's an experience that can be open to. That's where we can understand even this, it's not entirely perfectly pleasant. So we can practice opening to our teacher there, where it's a little bit more hospitable, a little less intense. So it's really okay to work with dukkha, to sort of negotiate with our teacher. It's, it's true on all levels. <laughs> it's like uh, I, I was giving a talk at Kamagra Meditation Center in Minneapolis where I teach, and we're reading a book by Ajahn Chah, and he opens this chapter talking about the pain of a teacher. And he's talking about how one line is, uh, mostly my students want to practice teachings that I don't teach. <laughs> He goes on, he says, like, either they don't listen or they listen and they don't bother to practice. (laughs) This is the pain of a teacher. So we have our ways of sort of negotiating with the teacher, but we don't want to forget that dukkha is a teacher. And we can postpone the teaching. We can soften the teaching in different ways. But ultimately, we have to really give ourselves to that teacher. We can... To some degree, not always, to some degree, we can pick the time and place a little bit. But we never really want to be too far away from that teacher because we get pretty deluded when we're far away. I remember, even in high school, feeling quite alienated because this started to become apparent to me in junior year and senior year in high school about the pervasiveness of suffering. And I really started to see it. I was a pretty serious athlete, a runner and uh, interested in getting good grades, getting into a good college and things like that. And it was a real struggle, of course, and uh, I noticed it was a real struggle. And once I got injured, and so I wasn't working out so much, and I was just a little bit more reflective, just less blind. And it occurred to me, like, where does this end? It's like running, training to, for the next race, for the next you know, time in the mile. I ran the mile a lot. and. Uh, where does this end? You know, it's like there's that race and there's always another race, you know, and then another season. And then I thought about academics. It's like, so I get into good college and then I got to get good grades there, you know, and then maybe I get a good job. And it started, it's just like, it's like it didn't make sense. 
And then I felt really alone because it's like, I didn't see anybody else who understood this about life. <laughs> Until a couple years after college when I came across the Dharma. And I was so grateful that people for a very long time had understood this about dukkha. Like, that this has something really important to teach us. Struggle, the pain of struggling to be happy, struggling to avoid unhappiness, has something deep to teach us. And if we let it teach us, then we can move on to the second teacher, the second noble truth. This is what the Buddha says. Normally, the, the second noble truth, as I mentioned at the beginning, is understanding the cause of suffering the origin of suffering. Normally we think, I'm suffering because you're not treating me the right way <laughs> or because I've, you know, I've got this bad feeling in my heart. And we think this painful feeling of loss or painful feeling of shame is the cause of our suffering. So then what feels justified? Well, if I think you're the cause of my suffering, I want to reject you. If I feel my shame is the cause of my suffering, I want to reject my shame. If I feel the pain in my knee is the cause of my suffering, I want to reject that. So we always meet our suffering with aversion or more craving in a way. So instead, the realization when we're steady with our first teacher, then the second teacher shows up. We begin, the mind begins to discern the cause of suffering. The second teacher, the second noble teacher, the Buddha says, What is the noble truth of the origin of suffering? It is craving, which renews being and is accompanied by relish and lust, relishing this and that. In other words, craving for sensual desires, craving for becoming, craving for non-becoming. So these are the three kinds of craving. But whereon does this craving arise and flourish? Wherever there is what seems lovable and gratifying, thereon it arises and flourishes. So whenever our mind can conceive of something that's lovable or gratifying, and remember that involves aversion, like if I could get rid of this, then my experience would be lovable and gratifying. If I could get that, my experience would be lovable and gratifying. And these are related. They're not really three distinct kinds of craving, thirsting, wanting, wanting a sense experience, wanting to become somebody, wanting something to cease or to be done with or to be over with, right? We all know these. We probably know them very well. The question is, do we see them as a teacher? Because the first insight in the second noble truth is realizing this is a teacher. There is this origin of suffering. And it's, it's this recognition that the teacher is right here, that the cause is right here. If the mind isn't actively involved in this cause, then there isn't dukkha. But when the mind is actively involved in craving, there's dukkha. And you know how in Buddhism, there's a real emphasis on cause and effect, just understanding the lawful, conditional nature of experience. So the most important place to see cause and effect is right here. Some of you know the famous discourse of the, where the Buddha held up a handful of leaves, pointed to the, all the leaves in the forest and compared that to the leaves in his hand and said, 
You know, I could be teaching a lot of different things, but I only teach something very specific. I teach dukkha and the end of dukkha. Why? Because that's the only thing that's actually relevant. I teach the Four Noble Truths. And so we want to learn from our teacher dukkha so we can learn from our teacher the origin of dukkha, the cause. The cause of dukkha, and I really like how Ajahn Sumero translates craving because it's confusing. If it weren't confusing, we'd be enlightened. (laughs) But it's challenging to understand this. It's attachment to desire that is the cause for suffering. It's not the painful feelings that arise in our experience. It's not wanting the pleasant feelings to last that causes suffering for us. It's getting attached to desires. Desires themselves are natural. You cannot be alive without having desire in the mind. Like for me right now, the desire to adjust my posture. But if my mind gets identified with some story about being the person who has this achy body or and proliferates around it and gets attached and identified, craves, grasps, wanting to be the person who's in a more comfortable position, then they're suffering. But if there's a noticing of that desire and a recognition that the desire is just the desire, and in comprehending the desire and seeing that it's not going to harm anybody, including myself, then we can act on desires. When we're hungry, we have the desire for food. Grasping food doesn't make us happy. It causes us suffering. Feeding the body doesn't cause suffering in and of itself. It's the attachment to food that causes suffering. It's the attachment to fame or to being loved. There's nothing wrong with being loved. But being attached to being loved is stressful. And we can see that directly in our experience. So we need to see this teacher that it's attachment to desire or craving that is the cause for suffering. In the great scheme of things, it's the only thing that needs, it's like the only bad guy in Buddhism. It's the only thing that that needs to be abandoned. And this is the second insight from this teacher. This teacher teaches three things. There is an origin of suffering, and this is attachment to desire. This attachment to desire should be abandoned. Now, this insight is, is not the same as saying, I need to let go of attachment to desire. Because that's called aversion, like, ooh, I shouldn't be desiring. Hating the attachment to desire is hatred. So, but we can see it, and and maybe later, um, Deborah was thinking of possibly giving a talk on skillful and unskillful thoughts, and if she does, I'm sure she'll go into this place in practice where we see the unskillfulness of a thought. In this case, we're seeing the unskillfulness of attachment to desire. And in seeing that it's unskillful, quite naturally the heart comprehends this should be abandoned. But we don't need to do the abandoning. We just need to see that this is unnecessary, it's impermanent, 
it's unsatisfying, it's not self, it should be abandoned. And that's called being patient. Because remember, being aware, being mindfully aware of the origin of dukkha, the cause of dukkha, the craving, the attachment to desire, and seeing it is an unpleasant thing to see. It's a liberating thing to see, but it's unpleasant and it can be really intense. This is why we need a lot of steadiness and a lot of confidence in these teachings because this is not easy work to do. It's nice when we get some continuity with the breath and we begin to feel calm. That kind of practice we like or walking peacefully in a beautiful setting and just hearing the sound of the birds and just the mind settling down and being relatively quiet, looking at a nice sunset. These parts of practice we really like. But when these two teachers show up, you know, dukkha and the origin of dukkha, and they have these, each have these three insights to teach us. In this case, with the second teacher, there is a cause. This cause should be abandoned. This cause has been abandoned. It takes great patience where we're just being steady. We're seeing the mind craving. We're seeing this is unwholesome. This is unnecessary. This should be abandoned. Until there's a moment where the heart says, it has been abandoned. In this moment, there's no craving in the mind. And we need to do that consciously with mindfulness. We have to see the dukkha. We have to see the cause, be steady with the cause until the mind is really clear, resonantly clear, this should be abandoned. This is unwholesome. This is not self. This doesn't lead to anything but more stress. Steady, 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 until the mind says it has been abandoned. And then the mind realizes dukkha has been abandoned. The cause has been abandoned. That's the third insight. It has been abandoned. Letting go has happened. And this is really important to, just even on an informational level, not to think that I have to let go of my greed I have to let go of my aversion. It's true that happiness comes when the the greed and aversion isn't present or isn't being identified with in the mind. But it's really important that we understand that that process that leads to that freedom is a deepening of understanding, not you or me personally getting rid of the dukkha or getting rid of the craving in the mind. And I'll just briefly mention the third and the fourth noble truth just to round it out. But it would be great if we just got really good with these first two teachers. But when we experience that letting go, that natural organic letting go that comes from being steady, seeing the cause craving in a steady way, seeing that it should be abandoned, then it is abandoned then there's an experience of what we call cessation. The the heart or the mind is realizing the heart or mind free of greed, anger, and delusion. Momentarily free of that. And it's like a different kind of reality because our heart has been so pervasively colored by greed, anger, and delusion for such a long time that it's a very unfamiliar experience maybe what we'd call a mystical experience because there's so much lightness, so much ease. 
And it, it seems like a different reality because the world always seemed a little bit problematic. And all of a sudden, in this moment, for a moment, everything seems okay. And like it's always been okay or it couldn't even ever be not okay. That's the flavor of that, even if it's just a faint glimmer of this insight of cessation. Just a sense of it's really okay. And then the, what the Buddha says here, the three insights is one to understand that there is a cessation of stress or suffering in the heart. There is freedom from suffering. This should be realized. This has been realized. So the mind, the heart has completely understood that experience, integrated it. And then it opens us up to the fourth teacher, the fourth noble truth. There's a path. And Deborah talked a little bit about this, the noble eightfold path. I'm sure you'll hear more about it this week. But it's basically this way of being. And the Buddha says, we realize that there is a path, that the path should be developed. That's the second insight, that the path has been developed. So in this tradition, that last insight corresponds to full awakening. So when we can say that we've realized all 12 of these insights, there is dukkha, it should be understood, it has been understood. There's a cause, it should be abandoned, it has been abandoned. There is the cessation of suffering, it should be realized, it has been realized. There is a way, it should be developed, it has been developed. That's where the person says, what needed to be done has been done. So may that be so. I just want to end with a a very sweet poem that probably some of you have heard before. But I think it's just a a fun and quite instructive teaching on the Four Noble Truths. And it's called Autobiography in Five Short Chapters by Portia Nelson. So this first chapter is, I think, an example of pure ignorance. I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost, I am helpless, it isn't my fault. It takes me forever to find a way out. So sometimes that's our experience in life. Second chapter. I walk down the same street, there's a deep hole in the sidewalk, I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Now, there's some awakening here because um, we're pretending, we're in denial of suffering. So we have some sense that there's something that we don't really want to face. But we wouldn't have to deny it if we didn't realize something that it's, it's special, right? Sometimes fighting what we're fighting against, we already know that eventually we're going to have to submit to it. So here's the third chapter. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. There's almost a little compassion in that line, right? It's a habit like, it's a habit, honey. It's okay. And it goes on. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It's my fault. I get out immediately. See, there's a lot of wisdom there now. Still suffering, still having difficulty. The fourth chapter. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. 
This is really the second noble truth. It's like we see the cause, but we know how to let it go. We see the cause, we let it go. We see the attachment to craving, the attachment to desire, we let it go. This is a lot of our retreat practice. And then the, the last chapter really, I think, corresponds to the third and fourth noble truth. I walk down another street. <laughs> really? It's a different way of being in the world. This is what, you know, we can be inspired by our wise elders in the, in the practice, the people who just seem to manifest a lot of the walking down another street, just not going there. Things arise in their life, but they just don't go there. They don't pick it up. And that can be so inspiring when we see that in people around us and when we see it in ourselves at times too. So let's just sit for a few seconds and let go of the words. So walking practice, and then we'll get together again at nine for chanting in a sit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.